millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Armando. And in this second special episode of the New Statesman podcast, we'll be joined by government homelessness advisor Dame Louise Casey and police officer turned environmental activist Paul Stevens to discuss activism in British politics. Is it better to be inside or outside the Westminster tent to bring about change? Amanda, why are we discussing activism in this episode? <laughs> why, indeed? I, this is crucial, I think, because I think a lot of the frustration in politics boils down to people feeling that they're not being heard within Westminster, irrespective of where you sit in the political spectrum or have any you know, political party affiliations. But I've noticed in the last four or five years, and, and specifically more recently, or maybe because of the pandemic, we've been... Picking up on the value, I think, of local community involvement, community behaviour, I I notice also if party politics, people are becoming a bit more cynical about it. I think they're not cynical about politics, but maybe they're drawn more towards single issue politics. There, I think, the passion and the enthusiasm and the commitment is for campaigning on, on single issues. So I just thought, given that this has now played such a major role in our kind of political debate at the moment, it's, it's worth spending a bit more time looking at it. I suppose the other kind of interesting thing about all of this is, yeah, kind of I think about if I was starting university now and I was politically engaged, right, would I join a political party or would I join Extinction Rebellion or would I join the local Amnesty International chapter? Yeah, obviously I, like, you know, every nerdy politico love the thick of it, but... Do you ever feel like the the picture of politics presented in it is one reason why that eighteen year old would go? Actually, I think I'll I'll stick to Amnesty International rather than I'll. Join. Well, you're a lot younger than me, so maybe you can answer that question. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, I mean no, several things. I always say to politicians, say to me, you know, that show's unfair. There are lots of people in political parties and in power who have good intentions, have principles, and get things done. And my answer to that to them is always, fine, tell me about them, show me them, let's let's see the evidence. I don't doubt you. It's very hard to do a comedy about people just getting on terribly well at their desk job. And what I wanted to look at is where I saw 
where politics for me had gone wrong and whether it had, you know, too much power had uh, accumulated within the office of the prime minister, whether there was too much control coming across from the prime minister's office and the treasury to other departments, whether we'd lost that sense of idiosyncrasy in politics. You know, great politicians of the past were always regarded at the time as being either a bit mad or a bit disobedient or, or a bit extreme. And we've kind of lost that element. Everyone has to fill a kind of uniform managerial outlook to succeed in, in politics. I think more so now also is the fact that party leaders are in total control. So it's very much either you agree with me or you're out. And I think that's, for me, where, you know, the more serious divisions. If I was making the think of it now, I'd be looking at that rather than, you know, how a ministerial department works. To help us get to the bottom of these, we're joined by a couple of very special guests. Dame Louise Casey, Baroness Casey of Blackstock, Deputy Head of the Homelessness Charity Shelter, before heading up the government's rough sleepings unit in 1999. I've had a plethora of roles in government, from anything from the Respect Task Force to Troubled Families Unit, was appointed government advisor on homelessness last year and joined the House of Lords as a crossbench peer. And we're also joined by Paul Stevens, who was a Metropolitan Police Officer for over 35 years, rising to the rank of Detective Sergeant, before joining the Extinction Rebellion movement as their police liaison. So, Louise, Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Louise, first of all, I mean, do you want to pick up on what I was saying about where party politics and governmental politics, if it was unfairly treated in the thick of it, in your experience working within lots of governments, both Labour and Conservative, is it your experience? And you must you must have continued doing that because you felt a sense that, yes, that's where the power is, but things can be done. Well, I mean, I think the, the, the thing about in the thick of it is that essentially you hit a raw nerve because actually some of the control trickery, as it were, is absolutely there. In some ways, actually, people always say that was down to the introduction of the Blair era and kind of this control out of Downing Street. Oddly, I think that as administrations have got weaker and changed, I think we see more control because actually you control what you control, which is telling ministers when they can make an announcement, sending your advisers into every government department to interfere, continuing sort of trade-offs really between doing deals with the with the Treasury and then separately having to do deals with number 10 and playing them off against each other. And I think that the interesting thing is some of that started under Labour, but Labour in the 99 had a very clear set of things that they wanted to do. And in some ways, some of their secretaries of state have more ability to get on and do the job than I feel is probably there, certainly at the moment, where I think we've lost sense really of you know, the Prime Minister's role is a first amongst equals. It's not a dictator in Cabinet. And, you know, I, I do wonder about where where we are with that, as it were. I think the other thing is I think we've seen a diminution of the civil service and I'm both a friend and a critic of the civil service. I can see, for somebody like me, the enormous downside of, you know, the sort of, no, you can't make any changes because of all these good reasons rather than, you know, yes, you can do that, but you've got to do it this way. And I think those two cultures were certainly my, I mean, I was in there for 18 years. I only only went in from shelter to sort out rough sleeping in 1999. And then I just sort of moved really wherever the cause needed somebody to look at something that was difficult. So I was never an insider, but I was their insider. 
do you feel that there are levers there that you could you could pull and push that that actually you could you were free to make significant change i mean if you can get the government behind you particularly the prime minister's office then essentially you can make enormous change i mean having worked in the homelessness field for a long time from a volunteer in a night shelter an outreach worker through to deputy director of shelter you know all our christmases came when essentially they they created the rough sleepers unit they put money into it and they appointed somebody from the outside who had potentially more expertise about getting it done than people who were career civil servants So, you know, when the wind is blowing in the right direction and you have a prime minister behind you, sometimes, Amando, it borders on patronage. So I remember at one moment, and I, you know, nothing to stop me saying any of these things anymore. I was stood in the pouring rain with David Cameron outside a family intervention project. He had his umbrella over me and he said, you do have your detractors in my cabinet because I just about upset every one of them, basically, uh, doing the Troubled Families programme. And it had got a little sticky from time to time. And he said to me, but you have me and you have Jeremy Hayward. And I thought, okay, that's clear then. (laughs) And I thought, well, you know, and in a a way that says so much. The other thing I want to say, because I was very interested in what, what you and Stephen were talking about is, I don't think the British public had a clue about devolution before the last 12 months. The idea that, you know, we all knew who Nicola Sturgeon was, but the fact she can decide when we go drinking in Scotland or when we put masks on or not, people probably hadn't heard necessarily of Mark Drayford, but we all know who he is now and we know that Wales is Labour. I mean, the population of Scotland is 5 million. It's, you know, it's the size of Yorkshire. The population of Wales is 3 million. This is old census data, but it still shows you something that they actually have significantly more clout than the whole of Yorkshire, which is bigger. Even the London mayor doesn't enjoy the same responsibilities. Paul, I mean, Louise is someone who's been in government, stayed working with government because the levers of power are there on, on certain occasions. Your trajectory has been to to actually campaign for an organisation that is working outside government. I mean, can you see any possibility of you having a, a conversation with the Environment Secretary or engaging with politicians uh, on a detailed policy level? Well, we have, actually. We've had members of XR Political. have had meetings with Michael Gove in the last couple of months. How do they go? Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the trouble really is that Extinction Rebellion, I can't see it as any other cause, which is how we're often lumped together, because it demands that people understand that they have to change the way they live, how we make things, how they consume. You know, it's all encompassing once they realise the danger that we're in. Really, we need to engage hearts and minds in the government, in the police, in everybody. Everybody should be aware of it so they can make their own decisions, which is why we want citizens' assemblies to come in so that at least there's a representative group that's making those decisions and not just a small group of people in government that were educated in the same school. I think the public perception of Extinction Rebellion is that their view is that climate change is so important, so all-consuming, that there is no room for compromise. But we exist in a world and in a country where the only way we can get things done is via compromise. How easy do you find it to persuade the membership to compromise? 
we're not an ideology. It's about strategy. I mean, we've got this massive threat we're facing and we have to do something straight away to tackle it. So when you see the government investing billions in fossil fuels, you know that's going in the opposite direction and something has to be said. The, the only one I can think that we'll compromise on is the 2025 because we're going to be there soon. <laughs> and then we can't be demanding to be carbon neutral by 2025 because I don't think it's going to happen. We may have to amend that. But we've got an interim demand for this summer, which is to end fossil fuel investment. So that is a compromise in a way. Louis, I, I wanted to come to you because the thing I'm kind of interested in is if you start off as a young or first-time protester or campaigner, there must come a point where you realise that to have significant change, to change not just a number of minds, but to actually, as we say, pull, pull the levers of power, you're going to have to engage with the political machine. I mean, there must have come a point, Louise, when, you know, as, as you started off working homeless shelters, it, was there a point where you thought, the way I have to do this is not on a kind of daily basis working here, but actually working over there? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, that started when I was in the Department of Health and Social Security in Brixton. And one Friday, I was 21. And all, all, all that I was available to do was to hand out milk tokens to this woman with three children who was in a domestic violence situation and come in all week. And we wouldn't give her any money at all. So we gave her milk tokens that she could use in the co-op on the Kennington Road. And I thought, you know what, I can't do this every day. So I have to do something else in addition to it. And, and that's what that's what that started. So I think the cuts to local government have been more profound, actually, than in any other part of the public sector. And we know two things. As long as they take our bins away and in rural areas fill potholes, there isn't anything else that the public care too much about. And yet look what has happened. The, the, the biggest thing that I feel frustrated about and would have gone back in to help them with will be a revolution in social care. I, I think we are totally in the wrong place, not just on the money behind social care, but actually the delivery of it, the concept of it, what it exists for. You know, we've got a welfare state based on the life expectancy of men dying at 66. We now let you die at 86. We keep men alive for much longer than we used to. And that's one of the most profound changes. And yet our, our welfare state and our care system are not beloved NHS isn't based on that model. The NHS is the National Hospital Service primarily, and everything else just has a lower profile and importance around it. Does national government talk to local government? I mean, are these areas of government joined up? No, of course they're not. I mean, that's part of the issue, isn't it? That this, Somebody like me has, has to work across different silos. People don't see ever the interconnections between different parts of, of, of government, and that plays out at local government. So local government gets so annoyed. They are so annoyed all the time with, you know, receiving a call from, you know, somebody saying, this is what you have to do in local government. And, you know, during the pandemic, we've created a second welfare state. Essentially, we've said, oh, 500 through this local government, a bit of free school meals through that local government, small pots of money that actually don't add up to a great deal, but means a minister can stand at the dispatch box and use a line to take. Because that's what this is often all about, which is what is your line to take? And that's the reality of, of in the thick of it in a much more serious way is your job often as a civil servant is to give defensive lines to a minister. So somebody can say, 
why have we got so many kids dying through knife crime on the streets of London? And a minister can get on his or her feet and say, we spent this amount of money on this project this year, and therefore we've done X, Y, Z. Answer the effing question and ask ourselves why that is happening. And you'll need a different answer to actually just spending money and small pots of it at that. That's quite interesting what Louise was talking about, because when there is an immediate threat to life, there is an immediate responsibility. If your boss says, no, I can't afford the overtime, then you say, okay, we've got a child that's going to get stabbed. Can you put your name to that? Is that okay? Can I just record what you're saying? So you can push back. You can make them accountable. And that happens. And then when you go a little bit further up and you get corporate savings being made or you get austerity, then that really makes people unsafe on the ground because, you know, number one, the police response is hugely changed. All the specialist units like Sapphire for rape investigation get scrapped. All those methods that have taken years to develop have gone. They, they invented omnicompetence, which means that anybody can do anything without any professionalism, you know, which is really insulting and, and, and not efficient at all. And like Mark Rowley, who was, I think he was DAC at the time, he did the, he did the tour of the stations when austerity came in to tell us that it's a good opportunity to change our systems, become more efficient. We're all going to get tab electronic tablets, so everything's fine. And we pushed back then, you know, everybody ex explained that it's going to make people, it's going to put people in danger if you do this. But it was, no, this is the way we're going. And the thing that gets me is, does anybody push back? Do that, does the command of the police push back to the government and say, this is going to get people killed? That's what I would like to know. You're listening to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast with Amanda Iannucci and special guests Louise Casey and Paul Stevens. When we return, we'll talk about whether charity has replaced the role of government and what would get Louise Casey marching on the streets. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One of the things we learn about ourselves as a country over the last 18 months is actually, you know, how important community is volunteering there was already a kind of network of food banks well in advance of the pandemic but that that sense of us all instinctively wanting to help out i just worry whether government now factors that in as something that will happen anyway so that it doesn't need to meet that commitment itself well, it comes to something when we've got Conservative MPs actually saying, I've done a really good job in my constituency, I've volunteered at a food bank. You know, the irony that we didn't have food banks before 2010, that, you know, I work globally on homelessness in, in the global south and the global north. It is a shame in this country that actually we need food banks and that they've, they've grown during the pandemic. And everybody needs to ask themselves, is that the best way forward? It's, it's an utter disgrace. And I myself rolled up my sleeves, volunteered at a food bank, raised money for it. I'll do anything during a pandemic. The same way I went in and essentially tried to make sure we got everybody off the streets and we closed communal shelters last year. And, you know, everyone's going, oh, great job that was. Well, yeah, it was great. All right, it was great. We did a job in the short term. We haven't solved homelessness. Towards the summer of last year, I was 
concerned that they would start to reopen sort of charity and utter dependence on these community centres and churches that put mattresses on the floor. And they they were something that didn't exist when I was the homelessness are. And, and last year, I thought, mm, well, you know, if we're going back to communal night shelters, this isn't for me. One of the real frustrations since 2019, right, where we're continually told and other outlets often write, austerity has ended. Well, not if you're a local authority, right? Yeah, in some ways, adult social care is the growing pressures it creates on local authorities in particular, the problems it creates for the state. It is the it's climate change, obviously, the existential challenge facing us as a country and, and across the world. But in terms of challenges to the public finances and to the state, social care is is the other sort of big iceberg. You seem quite frustrated talking about this. Do you ever wish that instead of spending your career kind of, you know, trying to knock down doors inside government, you had instead, you know, founded Social Care Rebellion and changed yourself to the Palace of Westminster? I think social care or the the protection of the elderly and the ability for us to work out how we can decently and kindly get old is something that actually I I don't think there is a strong enough campaign around that. And I mean that with enormous respect to organisations like Age UK and others, but they're very, very statutory. It's a bit like a lot of the children's charities take significant amounts of money to run services, at which point you're potentially a bit more like that, you know, if you're a Bernardo's and you're in receipt of huge amounts of money, are you going to bite the hand that feeds you? Now, I need to be clear, I don't agree with breaking the law in any way, shape or form, and I have not done that. However, campaigning and on the street campaigning, angry campaigning, I think can be incredibly powerful and helpful. And actually, I think that my worry is for children and for older people is that we'll go back to normal. We might need to plan this winter for food banks. And, you know, poor old Marcus Rashford will have to dust himself off and, you know, get hopefully get himself together to persuade everybody not to do a bad thing towards families in need. And the other one that's just because they're elderly and we don't see elderly people, we don't accept that we get old. It's like this, there should be this ginormous roar. I was getting people into hotels with individual rooms, with ensuite bathrooms at the same time People were being wiped out in care homes. And yeah, it does make me want to take to the streets. It does make me want to have former police officers come and help me when I'm in trouble. You know, all power to Paul and his colleagues, basically. And if we go through another 12 months without anybody doing something about social care, well, you know, I will take to the streets with anybody that will come with me. I mean, sometimes they have the power of the bloody vote as well. That's what's so extraordinary. Is there the lot that they're keeping, you know, We'll have the highest level of youth unemployment coming out of this pandemic than we've had since the last New Deal. You know, let's take a look at 18 to 25-year-olds. It's going to be dreadful, Stephen. And the other that's going to be dreadful is, you know, families, vulnerable families whose kids have not had an education for 12 months who we're just sticking on an effing scrap heap. It's like, where is the political voice for these families and these people? I don't hear it. So where do you channel the, the anger? I mean, Extinction Rebellion was born out of frustration, anger, passion, commitment to a, an issue. Love as well. But where does it, where does it go? What's, what's the next stage? Because already I think it's reached that point where it has lots of public support at one, one level, but also public suspicion, public annoyance. Are you in danger of actually limiting your appeal 
by the civil disobedience that you practice? Uh, I think right from the very beginning, people decided that we, it wasn't about popularity. It's more about just telling the truth. And I think there's so little truth, both in the media and from government, that is spoken. I think people start to realise after a year or two that actually Extinction Rebellion are saying the same thing and there's more and more science that's coming forward that's backing it up. Hopefully we'll get more support that way. But I mean, blocking a road is not going to make you very popular. I think it's really important when you do that, that you do outreach, you speak to people, you tell them why you're there. But really for me, I mean, that goes against the grain for me, obviously, breaking the law. So I'm there to make sure it's safe. That kind of was raising the alarm. It has it has been raised. I mean, David Attenborough's now openly talking about it. Addy on the front line was fantastic. So there's stuff in the in the mainstream that is educating people about the climate emergency. But what do you do beyond those headline grabbing disruption? Well, it's been more focused. I mean, the last, for the last since October 2019, which is when we occupied parts of Westminster, we then decided, especially with Canning Town and the the train incident which I think was a bit of a mishit. So as a result of that, we wanted to reach out and make it more attractive to uh, marginalised communities. Getting arrested doesn't appeal to black people, really. You know, they spend a lot of time trying not to and avoid stop and search and all the rest of it. So we said, right, we're not going to do that. We're going to focus on banks, building sites, places that are, are really funding climate breakdown. So we've been much more about the media disrupting in the media, disrupting shareholders and not disrupting the public. So we've kind of changed tactics over the last year. Is the consequence of that not, you know, being devil's advocate here for a second, that while you might get more support from beyond your kind of core core group of supporters and members and, and maybe wider support within the public, the people who make all the difference, the ones in power, actually become more antagonised by what you're doing and are therefore less likely <laughs> to, to to want to sit down. Louis mentioned Marcus Rashford. I, I thought I was just interested in how his campaign worked. It, it was smart because he didn't start off by calling the government names. He actually just addressed them with his concerns and actually as much as possible played down any temptation to be emotional and about it. And I just wondered whether that's why it worked. I mean, he obviously relied on his status and his popularity and, and, and whatever. For what it achieved, I thought it was a very effective and very intelligent way of, you know, starting off with a name and within two or three weeks achieving it. And it's quite a big aim as well. The difference being, of, of course, that it was pretty limited in what it was actually asking to happen. Part of the challenge for the environmental lobby is the asks are potentially very big. The public don't necessarily understand them. You've obviously got Paul and I on here because we, we both come from different sorts of ways at looking at some of these issues. I, of course, don't believe that we should create an alternative to democracy. So I actually think you have to make democracy work. And I would add things like citizens' juries and hearings and all of those things as part of democracy, feeding into MPs and not replacing it. And I think a lot of people don't hold MPs to account. That, of course, then gets into the in the thick of it culture where they seem powerless. So what is the point of lobbying your MP or your minister if actually they can't get anything done? And I think that it's changed in, in, in ways that certainly in my career of 30, 30, 40 years in public service, it's changed a lot. 
and, and we kind of need a reckoning, really. And I, I was hoping and still hope that the pandemic gives us a chance to think of a reckoning. People will do something when they're angry and want to complain. But actually, most people aren't going to spend Thursday night in a community meeting chatting about this, that and the other, unless, you know, Hackney changed when there were rats on the street, the rubbish hadn't been collected. And there was something symbolic about how, how appalling Hackney and Hackney Labour were. And they went for education to change Hackney. Very interesting example of when you don't go for what's obvious, you go for something bigger about systemic change. What do you say to someone who is passionate about something, angry about something, frustrated, wants to see change, whether it's for a specific cause or a, a larger issue? They didn't vote for the present government, but that present government isn't going to go away. So what do they do? How can they make change happen? How can they persuade that government to make that change happen? The thing about getting change in government is, is giving them things that they can do, asking for things that they can actually do. I mean, the Truffle Families Project was a rebrand of something I'd done under Labour, and that happened under something I discovered when I was in shelter. You know, you literally practically called it something different. So Labour, it would have to be family intervention, supporting families, vulnerable families. For the Tories, it had to be troubled families. I, these are trouble, we've got to sort them out different ideologies could come at the same thing. And, you know, we managed to help quite a lot of people through that process. I do think, though, that people have to consider carefully how they relate to their MPs and what they want from their MPs. And, and I think that that's, that's desperately important. And if we cut that link between members of parliament and the public and replace it with other things, then that's a dangerous road to go down. Give them something you can do. I mean, that's the CEE bill, the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill has been given to them. XR have supported it with a lot of other climate organisations and it's being slowed down on its journey through government. It will ensure that when government makes decisions, it considers the impact to the climate, which is, you know, the reasonable common sense thing to do when we're in so much danger. The thing that you definitely shouldn't do is to push through the PCSE bill, which will basically silence the young people who are angry about people our age taking away their future and not allowing them anywhere to protest or, tr or have any degree of agency. So that is the worst thing you can possibly do. It's the biggest radicalising factor that we will see on our streets. Thank you very much. I hope that we've made a small contribution to the lot to be done. Uh, Dame Louise Casey, Paul Stevens, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. So, Amanda, what was your takeaway from all that? Well, hmm, I was fully expecting Louise to be berating Stephen for his civil disobedience and his over-idealised take on how change can be achieved. But, as it turns out, she's quite a fan. And I think that says more about what might have happened to government in the last four or five years than anything else, in that she's had a career very much committed to working from within Whitehall to achieve change outside to someone who has sort of left that role really uh, and is expressing her anger and frustration at, at what is happening inside. There's clearly been a sea change in the last three or four years, particularly against the civil service. And we touched on this, this problem of the government actually demonising the civil service. And that process of demonising 
Louise also touched on in, in terms of local government, national government demonizing local government, local government not really having a proper support from national government. It's not terribly hopeful, but it's informative as a sort of snapshot of where we are now. I did think in terms of the question you had at the start of, you know, this sort of enterprise, I found it really interesting that I similarly thought they would be much more at odds. But in an odd way, it felt that Louise's remarks were almost sort of the explanation for why it is people are more attracted to campaigning like Extinction Rebellion. You have someone who has a huge record, you know, he's, who is themselves visibly and audibly frustrated at, um, at you know, at how politics currently works. But anyway, that's it for now. Anoush is back for the third of these bonus episodes. What will you be talking about with her? Well, in the next episode, Anoush and I will be speaking with Chris Addison, who plays Ollie in The Thick of It and has studied the role of unelected special advisor, one usually aged about 12, that now breeds across Whitehall. And with the campaign and East Devon election candidate, Claire Wright, who's continually stood as an independent and, and really looking at political campaigning, you know, what's more important is, is it the central national message from the, the big parties or is it about local grassroots campaigning? And how do we engage the public and make them vote? I'm very much looking forward to listening to that one. So until then, bye. Goodbye. You've been listening to a bonus episode of the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and our executive producer is Chris Stone. The music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>